Everything in Seven Stories by Andy Jones. Narrated by the author. Story 3. Chester's Secret. Part 1. Jack had finished putting everything away in less time than he had anticipated. It seemed from the outset that it was going to be a long and difficult job, but once he got into it, everything was packed and labelled fairly quickly. There was the equivalent of about two boxes for every room in the house. It was hard work, but rewarding. He knew that Chester would appreciate it, and that's all that mattered to him. Chester's family were coming down later that afternoon, possibly early evening. Speaking to Chester's son on the phone, it sounded like coming down was a real inconvenience to them, especially as they'd already been down to Surrey from Birmingham a week before in order to attend the funeral. Jack had asked them if there was anything he could do to make things easier. Chester's son Ralph just said, Well, yeah, if you could box some of the old man's stuff up for me before we get there, we'd really appreciate it. Jack had heard the lack of assiduousness in Ralph's voice. He could see it on his face too. At the funeral, Ralph seemed to be preoccupied with his family, who were mostly interested in sightseeing and checking out a West End show in London rather than paying respects to Chester, and it felt like Ralph couldn't care less either. Jack translated that Ralph just wanted him to get the junk out of the way before they had to come back there. The will was read out on the day after Chester's funeral. Though he wasn't a family member, Jack was asked to attend. Apparently there was something in the will for him. Ralph and his family were there too, and judging by the smile on Ralph's face, he certainly got what he wanted. Chester had left him everything. He was his only child after all. The house and all the possessions were left to Ralph. That is, every possession but one. They had made provisions to sell the house as soon as possible. All of Chester's possessions, without an immediately obvious value, were just going to be junked. Ralph had asked Jack if he'd be so kind as to put a call in with a good local estate agent, which Jack obliged. And that was it. Jack looked around one last time. This would almost certainly be the last time he was in Chester's house. Ralph was coming down to take the keys off him and sign a few papers with the estate agent. The house was in a prime location in Surrey and would sell him next to no time, no doubt paying off Ralph's mortgage in Birmingham free and clear. Jack stood in the living room for the final time. He thought of the happy moments he spent with Chester here when he was a kid. Heck, even the happy times he continued to spend until recently. Both Jack's parents died several years ago and even when they were still around, they seemed to treat the young Jack as an inconvenience. Jack had no brothers or sisters, and he was usually left to find his own amusement. He would have certainly gone off the rails had it not been for the sweet old man who lived next door. Chester Chester always had time for Jack. The old man's son Ralph was away at university in the Midlands, who got married and set up home there as it happened, and Chester's wife Rose died quite young. Thinking about it with a more mature mind... Jack realised that Chester treasured keeping company with the young, inquisitive kid from next door as much as that young kid enjoyed Chester's stories. Oh, the stories! Chester always had a story to hand and was constantly entertaining Jack with these adventures of the past. I mean, made-up stuff, of course, but for the young Jack, and now he was in his late twenties, he had to admit the older Jack too, 
these stories were nothing short of magical. There were many stories, and he would often repeat them to Jack, making them more magical with each telling. And they would all start the same, with Chester asking Jack if he had told him a certain gem before. Say, Jack, have I told you about the time I brought freedom to the people in Africa? My dear young man, did I tell you about the time I saved a billion people by creating magic beans that fed the world? Did I ever tell you, Jackie boy, of the time I saved the Prime Minister from certain death? Jack wasn't married, and didn't have many close friends. As he looked around the living room, it suddenly struck him just how much he was going to miss Chester, the man who kept him company as much as the other way round, the man who kept telling him wild stories till the last. And he had been with Chester until the very end. He saw him in the hospital every day, both before and after work. Chester had been admitted into the ward after complaining about his heart. The doctor told Jack right away that it didn't look good, but Chester kept on for a good month before his heart finally decided to beat its last. On that final day, Jack held Chester's frail hand and moved him really close as the old man beckoned him with his eyes. It was terrible to acknowledge, but Jack knew, even before Chester was sent to the hospital, that the old man's mind was going. Chester opened his mouth to speak. Then he whispered his last words to Jack. Behind old George. Nonsensical. But Jack was at least glad that he, someone who cared for him, was there at the very end. When he called Ralph an hour later, he didn't seem that distraught. Oh, that's awful. I hope he didn't suffer. Well, I suppose we better make plans to come down and see the solicitor regarding the will and the funeral arrangements too. Can I leave that part with you, Jack? You know what my father would have wanted better than me. Much obliged. Now that so many of Chester's possessions had been packed away, the house no longer looked lived in. It was bare and unfriendly, an empty shell of what it had always previously been. Jack suddenly had the urge to leave immediately so that the memory of how the house always was would stay as his lasting impression. As he walked towards the front door, Jack noticed the painting in the dining room. It was still hanging up on the wall across the door. The painting? He hadn't given it much thought since it came up at the solicitor's office last week. Chester had given everything to his son Ralph. Except this painting. The painting was specifically left to Jack. It wasn't much of a picture. Fairly basic painting of rowing boats docked in a harbour in the early evening with choppy seas and a storm brewing in the distance. While it was an original and not a print, it certainly wasn't worth anything and, as far as he was aware, it didn't carry much sentimental value to Chester, though he had owned it for as long as Jack had known him, and that was more than 20 years. He hesitated at first, but then took the painting off the wall, slid it onto the back seat of his car, and took it home with him. Part 2 Jack was slouching on the sofa, barely paying attention to the news on TV. They had run some special report on a pharmaceutical company in New York that had gotten into trouble over a dangerous testing it was doing in secret to children or... 
something like that. It all seemed a little overblown, but that didn't stop the banner of corporate trial of the century blazing over the screen. As the story wound down and the foreign affairs correspondent waffled on about the impending crisis with Brazil and how the southern American nation was goading the UK or something, Jack finally switched off. He was feeling bad about leaving Chester's house for the last time and didn't want to be dragged down any further thanks to things he couldn't control in the news. Earlier that night, just as he was getting his dinner out, typical, Ralph had turned up with his wife. Mercifully, Chester's son and daughter-in-law appeared in no mood for a chit-chat. As soon as Jack gave them his set of keys to Chester's house, they couldn't leave fast enough. As they were making their way out, Jack quickly inquired about the painting. Are you sure you guys don't want this? I'm not really sure why Chester left it to me. What? Ralph eyed it up momentarily wondering if it would be worth something. He quickly assessed, rightly, that it was devoid of any real value. No, you keep it. The old man obviously wanted you to have it. Hang it up somewhere nice, maybe in your lounge. Brighten the place up a little. Bye. And with that, they closed the door behind them. Jack would never see them again. That was something, at least. The painting. Why had Chester left it to Jack? Jack had placed it on the carpet, leaning up against the living room wall. He hadn't got any hooks to hang it up with and wasn't entirely sure that he even wanted to. It wasn't an ugly picture. The painting was reasonably well done, he supposed. But it wasn't anything special. Even as a youngster, Jack hadn't paid it any attention. And thinking back, even Chester only mentioned it to him once. What had he said? Something like... The fact that he had bought it from a market seller in Twickenham many years ago for no more than a few bob. The painter was selling his own stuff and for whatever impulsive reason Chester thought it was a nice scene. Jack wasn't sure why Chester would have taken to it. It was a painting of a series of rowing boats moored in a harbour with a storm gathering in the distance. The boats were nothing special. Most of them were depicted as being a little rough, the paint chipped off in places after a lifetime of use on the seas. According to Chester, when his wife Rose saw it for the first time when he got back from Twickenham, she simply stated that she'd find space for it. Not the most ringing endorsement. Leaving Jack this picture was a strange thing to do indeed. He wondered if this was simply another sign of Chester's failing faculties. Maybe Chester didn't even realise he was giving it to Jack. Maybe he meant to give Jack something of more value, but got confused. I mean, Jack didn't mind. He only ever wanted Chester's friendship in life. He wanted nothing from him in death. It was odd, though, that, according to the solicitor, Chester had made this specific amendment to his will only three months before his death. Previously, the will just left everything to Ralph. The exception of this painting to Jack was a very new addition to the will. Jack knelt down and looked at the painting. Until his last six months, Chester was as sharp as a tack. But in the last months, perhaps the old fellow acted in a nonsensical fashion with no real rhyme or reason, just like when he spoke his final words with his dying breath. Behind old George. Suddenly, Jack noticed something in the painting. He'd been staring at it for so long, but only now did he really see it. One of the rowing boats in the bottom right-hand corner of the picture was a rough old thing. 
The artist had clearly painted it to show that it was worn with old age. It used to be perfectly white, but the paintwork on the hull faded with age. There was a blue rim around the edge of the boat. And in little writing, its name painted on the side. Old George. Behind Old George. He took a sharp intake of breath. Almost instinctively, Jack turned the picture around. He looked at the bottom right-hand corner of the back of the painting. Nothing there. With delicate care, he found the edge of the backing paper on the reverse of the painting and gave it a tug. Nothing at first, but slowly it started to give away, as if it had only been stuck down again fairly recently. Sure enough, sellotaped to the back of the canvas, directly behind the depiction of the boat Old George, was an SD memory card. A tiny flat piece of plastic that claimed on the label that it could store up to four gigabytes of data. Written at the bottom of the label, in tiny writing with a permanent marker, was simply the word Jack. Jack had fired up his laptop within a minute of discovering the SD card. He had a slot to put the card in, and he was eagerly waiting for it to load up. As he ignored all the pop-up messages about having a new email and so on, he could feel his heart racing. What on earth was this SD card about? Finally, he managed to open up the contents of the SD card. He wasn't sure what to expect, but had to admit a certain degree of disappointment when there were only four very small files on the card, all of them with a date stamp of over a year ago. Each file was a word processing document. Read me first, dot, doc. Read me second, dot, doc. Read me third, dot, doc. And read me last, dot, doc. Out of a mischievous instinct, Jack double-clicked on readmelast.doc right away, but a dialogue box just appeared, requesting a password. Oh, damn. They must all be password protected, he said to himself. All except he double-clicked on readmefirst.doc. It opened. Jack took a deep breath and proceeded to read the letter his old friend had left him from beyond the grave. My dear young man, technology never was my strong point, as you know, but I've learned a thing or two over the years. Remember the first computer I bought? You helped me pick it out of the store, and I got a virus in the first week. But as I'm sure you've come to appreciate, I've been getting the knack for this stuff bit by bit, and now I just hope I've done everything here correctly for the quest that I'm about to embark you on. Firstly, if you're reading this, then that means that I finally crept, and you've ended up with a third-rate painting, which is probably lying on your living room floor or out with the rubbish bin as you peruse these words. Well, congratulations. You've already completed your first task, getting this SD card. I suppose that you've already tried to open the other files that are on here. I know you too well, young Jack, and you have by now realised that they're all password-protected. 
I can assure you that, if you prove yourself worthy, you will be able to open each file in order, one by one, until you learn, well, something pretty special indeed. You see, my young man, I have one final story to tell. The truth is, all the stories I've told you over the years, to one degree or another, have been pretty much true. Sure, I've added a number of, shall we say, colourful embellishments over time, but I promise you now, from the next life, that the primary seed of every story was true. I have been holding on to a great secret now for many years, something only a few of us in the world know. It's nothing sinister, in fact, it's quite the opposite. But knowing the secret comes with a significant duty and responsibility that has been passed down over the years. It was clear to me over a decade ago that my own son would never be ready to embrace this duty and uphold the ancient and important secret in the manner that a select number have in the past. But you, my dear young man, you certainly could. Of that I am absolutely sure. It has been customary over hundreds of years that this secret remain intact by guardians of the truth in order to continue the gradual liberation of the human race. But in order to be privy to this secret, one must be prepared to be a guardian of it. And to become a guardian of this secret, one must prove themselves worthy. And this is the challenge I offer to you, Jack. Are you ready to become all that you can be? Are you ready to take on a duty of such great importance and never reveal its secret to anyone? If not, then I understand. I am asking you to take an incredible leap of faith. But if you feel ready and are okay with proving your worth, then I ask simply that you answer this question. What was the name of the professor that I helped feed the world with? If you can answer that, then you can unlock my next file. Your friend, even in death, Chester. Part 4 Jack had read the first file several times and had even printed it out to take it to bed with him. But now he had pored over it for hours. He was exhausted, yet he could not sleep. The the frustrating thing is, the answer was a simple one. He knew it right away. What was the name of the professor that I helped feed the world with? That was Professor Winkleman. He remembered Chester telling him that story countless times. It was one of his favourites. Well, my dear young man, there was once a profoundly wise scientist called Professor Winkleman. Winkleman was a true genius. He wanted to create a magic seed that would grow and feed the world. His heart ached for the solution to his magic quest. And one day, I happened upon an idea with a group of friends. I paid Professor Winkleman a visit, and with a little encouragement, we saved the world, and no one was starving any more. Jack was rational enough to know that millions around the world were still starving and that Chester had made the story up. Or had he? 
But there was no way there was a real Professor Winkleman. The name was preposterous, like Willy Wonka. It was a story to entertain and enchant a young boy's vivid imagination, nothing more. Once he realised that there was no chance he was going to get any sleep tonight, Jack tried to recollect all the different specifics of the story that Chester told him each time. But he soon realised that every time Chester had told him the story, the specifics were different. After all, it was a made-up story, wasn't it? How could Chester have helped a mad scientist called Professor Winkleman save millions of lives? Sometimes Chester said it was billions. He sometimes said he got knighted for it or that he won a Nobel Prize for his efforts. The young Jack didn't even know what a Nobel Prize was, but it had sounded cool. Before going to bed, Jack had tried the obvious stuff. He entered Winkleman's name into the password dialog box of the second readme file. He tried every variation that he could, sometimes including the label professor, sometimes not, sometimes with the correct letters in uppercase, sometimes all lowercase, but nothing worked. He looked at the LED readout of his bedside clock. It was 3.15 in the morning. Jack had finally managed to get a little sleep around 4, but his alarm went off at 6.45am and he had really struggled to get up in time for work. Some of his work colleagues in the office looked at him a little contemptuously, all except his mate Ryan, who upon seeing Jack so worn out and dishevelled asked, Well, who was she and are you going to see her again? Jack had slumped down on his desk and was contemplating closing his eyes for a few minutes, wondering if the boss would notice. He wrote technical support documents for a living and had a hard time keeping his eyes open at the best of times, and the grimy black coffee from the office machine wasn't helping a damn bit. But even in his semi-slumber, he couldn't stop thinking about Chester. He just had to find the answer to that password. He knew that the professor in the story was called Winkleman. That was one of the few bits of the story that didn't change every time Chester told it. Suddenly, staring at his computer screen, he had a brainwave. That was stupidly obvious. Why had he done it first thing last night? He quickly opened his internet browser on his office computer. Within a second, Google was awaiting a prompt. Jack typed Professor Winkleman. Sure enough, there was a hit. Over 200,000 hits, to be precise. But the hit right at the top was the one that got his attention. It was the biography page of a Professor Winkleman who worked in the Biological Agricultural Sciences Research Department at the University of Reading in Berkshire. Jack's heart started beating with the same intensity of last night. Reading? Berkshire? That wasn't far away from where Jack worked these days. He suddenly didn't feel tired anymore. He vowed to go and see the Professor in his lunch break. The quest was on. Part 5. The University of Reading was much larger than Jack had guessed it would be. It spanned more than one campus, but eventually he found a directory map and headed over to the Biological Agricultural Sciences Research Department. The receptionist was very unsure about letting this incredibly dishevelled man into the department, but after a great deal of pleading, she finally acknowledged that yes, there was a Professor Winkleman working there, and she would try and get him on the line. Jack could tell that she was half hoping that the Professor would refuse to see him, so she could have the satisfaction of escorting this rough-looking man off the premises. However, her slightly sullen expression after a moment on the phone raised Jack's expectations. After a moment... She turned back to him. 
Professor Winkleman says he does not know who you are and that he's awfully busy, but he says he will see you now as long as it's quick. Thank you, Jack said, and started walking past her and down the corridor. It's the fourth door on the right, she called after him and went back to playing Minesweeper on her computer. Jack walked up to the door. Professor R.D. Winkleman and a lot of letters that Jack didn't understand next to it. He hesitated before opening the door. Was he in over his depth a little here? What was he going to say when he walked through the door? What was he really doing here? Come in, said a fairly friendly voice on the other side, before Jack had even had a chance to knock. (coughs) Professor Winkleman's office was a mess, but Jack got the sense that there was an organisational structure to the chaos. Pull up a pew, the professor gestured to the seats across from his desk. Thank you, said Jack, sitting across from the professor. Winkleman was clearly in his late fifties, but seemed to possess a youthful vitality that Jack couldn't quite nail down. The hair on the temples of his head was going grey, and the face had certainly not aged well, but there was something else. Something in his smile, maybe? I'm only letting you in because I'm a pushover, the professor said. I've told most of your fellow press hacks to book appointments from now on, especially as we're so close to getting everything ready. Oh, I'm not a member of the press, said Jack. Winkleman frowned. You're not? No, sorry. I didn't want to give you that impression. I'm actually not that sure what it is that you do here, if I'm honest. Jack didn't get a chance to carry on. The smile on Winkleman's face had now totally vanished. You're not press. Then I'm very sorry, but I'm really swamped under here, he said, standing up and gesturing towards the door Jack had just stepped through. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Jack was going to protest, but thought better of it. This was clearly a busy man, and what on earth was Jack doing there anyway? On the back of a silly story that an old friend had told him, he suddenly felt very embarrassed. As Jack headed to the door, he muttered, I tried Chester. Wait, said Winkleman. There was a sudden seriousness in his voice. What did you just say? Oh, nothing. Just muttering to myself, said Jack apologetically. Did you say Chester? I thought that's what I heard. Jack nodded. Where was this going? Chester is in Chester Smith. Jack couldn't believe it. Did, did Professor Winkleman really know who Chester was? The cup of tea that Professor Winkleman had given Jack was now cold, but he didn't care. They'd been talking for a while about Chester. It was mostly Jack doing the talking about Chester's life and how he had only been living down the road in Surrey and how he had died very recently. That seemed to upset Winkleman a bit. Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. Chester, if it's the same Chester I knew, he was a great man. Jack finally seized the opportunity to ask some questions of his own. And how exactly did you know Chester, Professor? Know him? I can't say I knew him really, but I'll certainly never forget him. I don't understand. Let me tell you the whole thing. It was over 20 years ago. I was a junior scientist trying to get grants and research money. I had a theory, admittedly with a lot of holes in it, about creating an ultra-resilient GM crop... And I'm talking about one that's even more advanced than the stuff the great Norman Borlaug had created. Who's Norman Borlaug? asked Jack. Oh, he's one of the pioneers of the genetically modified revolution. He created GM crops that have helped feed millions, billions even. And you were trying to do something similar? Yes, 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 but on a whole new level. 
Lots of others were trying to do it too. They still are, in fact. But we've all had trouble trying to get the chemical balance right. Even so, with the pennies of funding here and there, I was close to success, but still so far away. And how does Chester fit into this? Professor Winkleman sat back in his chair for a moment and chewed on the end of his glasses. Jack could tell he was recalling the story vividly. It was a little over 20 years ago. I was sitting right where I am now, in this very office, and a man walked in through the door, the professor said, pointing at the same door Jack had entered, and introduced himself as Chester Smith. He was maybe a little older than I am today. I'd definitely say he was in his 60s, and he came in with a rolled-up newspaper under his arm, a big brown jacket on. 20 years ago, said Jack. Yeah, that'd be right for Chester age-wise, and... He had a brown jacket. Well, it was more like a long raincoat. Yes, that's it! Winkleman sat up, animated that they clearly were both referencing the same Chester. Anyway, I thought he was one of these millionaire philanthropists or something. He, he didn't look it, but you can't tell with those guys. He talked to me about my funding issues, but very little about my research, which was odd. Why was that odd? Because I've had a lot of potential investors, especially in those early years, and all they'd want to hear is how close we were to making a breakthrough. But Chester didn't ask me once. He annoyed me, actually. I was talking to him for nearly three hours doing my full-on sales pitch when suddenly he got up, shook my hand, wished me luck and left. Just like that. What did you make of that? I just figured he was a time waster and I'd been talking to him for so long I was way behind on preparing my lecture notes for the following afternoon. I can remember it all so vividly. I was writing up some course notes later that night. It must have been past eight in the evening. And I was almost done. And as I got up, I put my coat on. And I noticed that he'd left it. Left what? Jack asked. His rolled up newspaper. He'd left it on his chair. I picked it up to drop it in my waste paper basket when a rolled up file fell out. Winkleman came out of his daydream and looked Jack right in the eyes with a big smile. <laughs> the file that changed my life. What was in it? Oh, it was revolutionary. Remarkable. It was a series of chemical equations and designs. Microbiology stuff. It was based on some of my general theory, but took it in directions that I wouldn't have thought about in a million years. And it had my name as the copyrighted owner on every page. What did you do with it? Oh, well, I put it to work, said Winkleman. Tested every equation. They all worked. It advanced my work to levels I could have only dreamed of. And it was because of that that I was so easily able to get my private funding. And now, 20 odd years on, we're nearly at the conclusion of it all. The conclusion? asked Jack. Yes, this microbiological technology has matured so much that we're months away from producing the safest, most resilient GM crop technology in the world. We're going to sell it all over the globe for incredibly low prices, free to most of the third world. Professor Winkleman leaned forward and spoke to Jack intently. The man you knew, Chester. He's going to have been responsible for saving the lives of over a billion people and ending the concept of agricultural famine forever. Jack swallowed hard. This was the magic seed story that Chester had told him countless times. I tried to track Chester down for years, continued Winkleman. 
but was never able to find him. I only knew his name. Who'd have thought he was just out the M3 in Surrey all this time? Jack's mind was racing. Chester had really told the truth. If that's the case, what other crazy stories were true? The professor didn't seem that keen on parting ways with Jack and insisted that they exchange contact details before he left. Though his lunch break was pretty much up, Jack was sure he'd be seeing Winkleman again soon. Just as Jack was leaving the professor's office, he heard him say, Hunger. He turned around. Sorry, what was that? Hunger, Professor Winkleman repeated. I don't know if it means anything to you, but on the bottom of the very last page of chemical equations in the file Chester left, it simply said, If anyone asks, tell them hunger. I figured it meant that if anyone asks why we were doing this, the answer would be, rightly, to end hunger, to stop people going hungry around the world, you know. Part 6. It had to be the longest afternoon at work that Jack had ever experienced. It seemed like every time he looked up at the clock on the wall near his cubicle, it had slowed down just a little. He had tried to bury his head in his work, but couldn't concentrate on anything other than the second readme file on Chester's SD card. He had the right password, he just knew it. At exactly 4.58pm, Jack had his coat on and was heading out of the door 60 seconds later. He couldn't even recount the drive home. Every turn into each street brought him closer to home, and as he got closer, he could feel his heart pounding with increasing intensity. Back home, within three minutes of coming through the front door, Jack's laptop was booted up. He double-clicked on the file named readmesecond.doc and typed hunger into the password dialog box. The file opened. He couldn't believe it. It was the right password. If anyone asks, tell them hunger. (laughs) It seemed that Jester was quite the forward planner. Despite all his impatience, Jack took a minute to clear his head. He even got up and grabbed a Pepsi out of the fridge and sat back on the sofa, his glowing laptop in front of him. Okay, Chester, Jack said to himself. What have you got for me next? My dear young man. So you found Professor Winkleman then. Well done. I had a feeling you'd do it if you were determined enough. It must have taken quite some initiative, dear boy, not to mention about 30 seconds on Google. It's funny, no one believed the poor professor's story about the funny old man who turned up with those documents that will help so many souls. Even now that you've probably told him everything about me, they probably still won't believe him. But that's okay. Professor Winkleman deserves all the credit. He was pretty much spot on about his GM crop theory. As for myself and the others who share my secret, we just needed to give him a friendly nudge in the right direction. Well, how about that? A few colourful embellishments aside, and it turns out that one of crazy old Chester's stories was true, huh? And you know what else was true? Of all of my stories, one was your favourite. The superfluities on this one were rather extreme, granted, but the heart of the story was just as accurate as the one about me helping feed the world. I speak no lie to you, my dear young man, when I say that I once liberated a whole people from tyranny. And it was pretty easy. In fact, 
It's amazing what a little positive reinforcement will do. If you'd like to know more, I'm sure Mr. Zizi Umbutu at the Uganian Embassy could illuminate things for you. He didn't know me, not really, but I imagine that he'd have quite a tale to tell. A tale of a mysterious Englishman, perhaps? Though he doesn't know it as such, I'm certain that Ambassador Umbutu would even be able to spread a little light on your next problem that I've set you. Namely, the password you need to unlock the third file on this memory card. Good hunting, my dear young man. Chester. Part 7 Jack hadn't exactly lied when he called his boss that evening asking for the rest of the week off. He had explained that someone who he was very close to had passed away, which was true. It hadn't happened that evening, but it qualified as a little white lie. His boss would deduct the time off of his remaining holiday days anyway. He was hunched over, looking down at the brown, polished tiles in the reception of the Uganian embassy. They were so immaculate, he could almost make out his own face. It was 9.08 on Tuesday morning. He had tried to get some sleep in during the previous night, but it was still a little difficult. He had spent a great deal of time online overnight, finding out everything he could about the Free Republic of Eugenia. It was easily the most prosperous nation in Africa, but it wasn't always the case. In fact, poverty and misery were, until a few decades ago, the horrifying norm there. Since it was first known as Eugenia about 160 years ago, it had suffered under the regime of one dictatorship or another. The Central African country had very few natural resources, and what they did have was usually ploughed into a never-ending war machine. It could be a crazed warlord, the communists, fascists, or anyone in power at any given time. The only thing that was certain was that they'd be overthrown before long. And with each revolution, there was a new dictator. And each dictator was worse than the last. The Uganian story was bloody, and each uprising topped the previous one for sheer horror alone. Nothing on the internet gave Jack clear-cut answers. But it seemed that after the last revolution, which was incredibly over 30 years ago, things settled down. There hadn't been a single uprising, counter-insurgency or violent protest since. The general who initiated the revolution had all the credentials of yet another dictator. But very soon after seizing power, General Impala behaved in an incredible way. He first refused the aid that his country was receiving from the West. Instead, he revoked all the trade embargoes that his predecessor had put in place. He wrote up some unilateral free trade agreements, not just with specific nations, but with the whole world. In fact, he didn't negotiate a free trade agreement with any nation. He merely declared that Eugenia would freely trade with any nation in the world. He worked hard to create a framework for a solid rule of law, established elections and a constitution that limited both the size and powers of the government. The state was restricted by law to courts, police, military and a basic civil infrastructure. Taxes were initiated on consumption but were low. Term limits were put in place. Even the general himself, President Impala by this time, only stood for one term in office. The economic boom that ignited was like nothing Africa had ever seen. Businesses from around the world flocked to take advantage of the low taxes and relative safety that the Uganian property rights afforded to them. Within 10 years, 
Eugenia was the wealthiest African nation. Now, 30 years since the revolution, though some liberties have been curbed and the government power have marginally increased, Eugenia was still considered to be one of the most prosperous and happy places on the planet, not just in the African continent. All Jack knew about Zizi Mbutu was that he was there at the start of the revolution and, for about 15 years, had been the Ugandan ambassador to Great Britain. His Wikipedia stub wasn't much more detailed than that. But Jack recognised his face from a picture online as soon as he came down the stairs. He was a little older than the picture Jack had seen, with a little greying around the temples, but it was definitely him all right. Jack stood up immediately and shook his hand. He could tell right away that the ambassador was in a hurry and was already looking for a way to end this meeting before it began. Ambassador Mbutu, Jack started. Please, just Zizi is fine, was the reply. Friendly but mildly impatient. Jack, Jack Williams, I know I haven't booked an appointment but I would really like to take ten minutes of your time if I may. Jack could tell by the look on Zizi's face that ten minutes was going to be nine and a half minutes too long. I really am pushed for time, Mr Williams. If you could tell me what this is about... Sure, I totally understand. Do you know, or did you know from your past, a man called Chester Smith? No. Are you sure you're in the right place? Zizi answered him immediately and was already backing away, his headspace fixed on his next pressing engagement. Oh, I'm sure of it, pressed Jack. Are you sure you don't know him? By now, Zizi was already politely but firmly leading Jack by the arm and escorting him to the main exit of the embassy lobby. I'm sorry, Mr. Williams, I really don't know anyone of that name. I hope you find who you're looking for, and if you send an email out via the embassy website, I'm sure we can look a little further into our archives for you. But Jack knew he'd blown it. What else was there to say? What had Chester written in the second email? I imagine that he'd have quite a tale to tell. A tale of a mysterious Englishman, perhaps? <laughs> well, it was worth a shot. They were at the door now, and Zizi had already opened it for Jack to leave. Mr. Ambassador, Zizi, said Jack, already screwing up his last chance. During the revolution, do you know of anyone who helped your country during that time? Was there anyone who worked with General Impala in some way? Maybe a mysterious visiting Englishman? Zizi's patience had already worn down to the bone and Jack thought he might just start shouting at him or worse, have security order him away. But the last question got Zizi to pause for a moment. In fact, more than a moment had passed. Had Jack struck a nerve with Zizi? The previously impatient man was now pausing, looking at the ground in deep thought. After a good few seconds, the ambassador finally spoke. As it happens, I do have a few minutes before my next meeting. Would you like to come up to my office for a little tea? To describe Ambassador Zizi Umbutu's office as plush was an understatement. It was clear to Jack that the purpose of a room like this was to overwhelm any visiting guest. And for him, it was certainly working its magic. Zizi had poured Jack a regular English breakfast tea and had made himself an Earl Grey. Jack found it interesting that there was no maid or something to do that for him. And he found it even more interesting that he had suddenly managed to get himself into the Ambassador's office. So, Mr. Williams, began Zizi. Oh, please, Jack's fine. The ambassador smiled. Jack, can I ask, what do you know about the revolution that turned us into the free republic of Eugenia? Only what I read on the internet, to be honest. Jack suddenly felt incredibly dumb. <laughs> Don't worry, 
It's about the same as most people I encounter in this job, said Zizi. And I can't blame you. After all, Eugenia is far away and we fought that revolution when you were a toddler. If you were even born at all by then. They call us the Hong Kong of Africa now, but they had pretty awful names for us before. Jack didn't know why. Maybe it was something in the ambassador's friendly tone of voice, but he felt a bit more relaxed now. He let the pause fill the room, willing Zizi to continue. Just over 30 years ago, General Impala was a ferocious force in our military. He was top brass, as you English say. By the sheer force of his personality, he rallied so many to his side. The previous government, the communists back then, had oppressed many of us. We were starving and yet still ready to fight. None of us knew what the outcome would be, but after nearly four months of brutal fighting, we finally took control. When I say we, I mean, of course, General Impala. He glanced over at the large bust of the general, standing imposingly by the window. I was one of the general's chief subordinates. The communists, they had killed my whole family denounced them as fascist saboteurs because my father took several loaves of bread from a state wagon. He stole them just to feed our family for a few lousy days. Jack was feeling uncomfortable again. He could see Zizi's eyes welling up. His voice had broken slightly. Clearly these moments were still too vivid for him. The violence. The hatred. The horrors. Not just of the last regime, but of what we all did to overthrow it. It was just... He couldn't finish his last sentence. Jack didn't want him to either. And what happened once you and the general took power? He asked. Then, the hunger in our bellies was replaced with hate. We all wanted revenge. The capital city was laying in ruins, but that was not enough. I still remember it so clearly. General Impala was in the cabinet office of the last regime. There was still blood on the walls. He was telling all of us that in that room, how it was our time. He got us all riled up, telling us how he would crush the remaining members of the old regime and instill a new kind of order and force, the likes of which the Uganian people had never seen before. That's when the man walked in. What man? I never knew his name. A stranger. He was white and I hadn't even seen a white face before at that point. Not actually in Eugenia, at least. He had this long brown jacket tucked under his arm, and he was wearing sunglasses, almost like he was on holiday. It was crazy. Jack swallowed hard. Long brown jacket? It was Chester. Uh, and what did you do? What did we do? said Zizi. We raised our guns. We had no idea who this man was or where in the world he had come from, but... He was in the wrong place. He was ten seconds away from death. General Impala was furious. He screamed, Who is this man? And the man just walked a couple of steps closer to the general when with a big smile just said, A friend. It was an English accent, just like yours, Jack. I remember it so clearly. None of us knew what to do. We, we should have opened fire by now, but there was, there was something about him. I, I don't know. Jack could tell by the look on Zizi's face that he was lost back in that moment and time again. The general was taken aback too for a moment. 
But then he was having none of it, Zizi continued. He screamed, we don't need any imperialist friends. You made a big mistake coming here, old man. He got right in the man's face with his AK-47. And what did the old man do? He got closer still, then took off his sunglasses and looked the general right in the eyes. He was a dead man, but he just smiled again. The silence was deafening. At first I was angry when this white man turned up, and after that I was afraid. But then, at that moment, then I felt unsure. Did this man say anything to the general? Yes, he, he just said, Could I have a moment of your time, general, alone? Goodness, I haven't thought about this in such a long time. It was so surreal, even back then. I don't know whether it was a sense of curiosity or not, but the general agreed. What happened? Jack asked, with a feeling like the most extraordinary part of the story had yet to unfold. I don't know. They went off down the corridor into one of the offices we'd commandeered from the old regime. They were there for three hours... None of us dare go in. At first, the general was talking quite animatedly, but after the first hour or so, they were talking in a much more subdued way. Then finally, the old man left, unharmed. General Impala looked different. He was changed somehow, as if he had seen the face of God, or had been told something that had turned his whole world upside down. What did he say? Oh, nothing at first. I finally plucked up the courage to say, General? And he looked at me. After a second, he said, Pull the militia out of the cities, but maintain rule of law. Let it be known that looting will not be tolerated. This will be a regime of freedom and justice. The law applies to us all. I want no acts of vengeance for the crimes of the past. That is an order. And we knew that we had to obey. Five years on, the country was becoming stable and prosperous. Impala stood down after one term, you know. Set a precedent for every other that's followed him. Two years before his death, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. The ambassador sat down as he continued. I don't know who that Englishman was, Jack, or if any of that story helps you in any way. All I know is, that man did or said something that saved my people. I very much doubt I would be alive today if something hadn't turned the general around at that moment. I'm not sure I want to know who that man is. You say Chester? I don't know. All I know is without him, Eugenia would be a very different and much more unpleasant place. Is there anything else I can do for you, Jack? Jack was amazed by what he heard, but felt like there must be more. After the Englishman left, did General Impala say anything else to you, he asked. No. Oh, wait. Another memory was coming back to Zizi. Yes, yeah, he did. Um, oh, how could I have forgotten this? It's one of the most important moments in my memoirs, but I suppose it's been a long time since I've even looked at them. Y yes, he did say something else that day. Once he told us that there would be no acts of vengeance. I was all over the place. In my adolescence, I wanted blood, and I was sure General Impala had wanted it too, but... He just looked at me, saw the rage and confusion on my face and said one thing, tears in his eyes. Omietta. I remember it so vividly now. Jack was confused. I don't get it. Omietta? 
What does that mean? Zizi pulled himself away again from his daydream and smiled at Jack. Omieta. Uh, uh, there's not a word in English that exactly translates, but uh, I suppose the nearest thing is the word liberty. Suddenly Jack could feel his heart pumping again. He had an impulsive urge to get home and get back on his laptop right away. But he knew that there was one last thing he needed from Zizi before he could do that. Omieta, he said. Forgive my ignorance, Ambassador, but could you tell me how you spell that? Part 8. Jack had learned how to spell Omieta off by heart by the time he got home, reading and rereading it on the train but he still typed in the third readme files password dialog box with great care, referring to the word he'd scrawled on a piece of paper in Ambassador Zizi Mbutu's office. It opened. Jack felt so close to the truth, but still had no idea what the truth would be. Dearest Jack, congratulations at getting the password from the ambassador. Or maybe you just read it as the first volume of his memoirs. Either way, I had every faith in you, of course. Three down, one to go. It saddens me that I'll never get to hear what you made of Zizi. He's a good man with a kind heart who, thankfully, has had the opportunity to serve his country well. Until he met you, assuming he now has, he and General Impala never knew who I really was. And Zizi would have never known what I said to the general. Impala was a good man, just consumed with rage. And rage makes us all act in illogical ways. Sometimes you have to meet that rage with love and compassion. It's the only surefire way to defeat it. Well, your ability to seek out the truth is commendable, Jack. It may serve you well in what I'm proposing you do with your life. But you have just one more task to complete before you find out exactly what I am suggesting you take on. Before that, as you've come so far, it would be unfair not to enlighten you somewhat. It's time you learned in broad strokes what I've been doing and what I have done on and off with my life. You've probably guessed by now that I was not quite the corporate insurance salesman I professed to be in my working life. I did, however, spend great amounts of time away on business. But that was business of a very different nature. I had a different calling than that of corporate insurance, though maybe it wasn't that different after all. A kind of humanity insurance, if you will. It is a calling which maybe you would feel comfortable following too. But I can't make that decision for you. You must learn the whole truth and then decide. And that truth is closer than you think. My final request is that you find the First Lord's aid. Sir Robert was the first, but who came first from 63 to 67? Good luck, my dear young man. Chester. Part 9 The dull clouds had followed Jack from his house that morning, gathering foreboding intensity until he finally found himself at his destination. Then the heavens opened. He was becoming aware of the windows of his car misting up, the windscreen wipers doing little to clarify the imposing gate he was facing. 
He was outside the main entrance of the grand estate belonging to Lord Cedric Hattenden. What was he supposed to do next? He drove up closer to the gate. There was a buzzer on the driver's side. He pulled up and pressed down on the button, taking in what seemed like gallons of water as he wound down the window. He grew impatient, waiting for someone to respond to the buzzer. But even if it took hours, he didn't care. He'd wait. He was determined to see Lord Hattenden. Although it had taken several hours of pacing and internet hunting, Jack had finally figured out Chester's last question. Find the First Lord's aide. Sir Robert was the first, but who came first from 63 to 67? Just googling First Lord had helped him somewhat. The First Lord was a reference to the First Lord of the Treasury, aka the Prime Minister. Sir Robert was the clue that gave that away. Sir Robert Walpole was the first PM. But then Jack hit a brick wall. There were three Prime Ministers between 1963 and 1967. Harold Macmillan, Sir Alec Douglas Hume and Harold Wilson. Which Prime Minister did Chester mean? But then it was so obvious. Chester hadn't asked about the Prime Minister. He had been asked to find the First Lord's aide. Another quick search on Wikipedia discovered that between 1963 and 1967, one man, a single civil servant, acted as official aide to all three Prime Ministers. The then bright and influential young man known as Cedric Hattenden. Hattenden was eventually granted a peerage and served on the House of Lords, though as he was getting infirm in his old age, it appeared that he seldom attended the chamber. There were a few brief details scattered online about his life in the 60s. Jack found the odd article online and write-up. Throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s, Hattenden spoke at Libertarian Alliance meetings, took on directorships at key think tanks and the like, usually ones that had an emphasis on promoting freedom in one area or another. Other than that, Lord Hattenden seemed to be rather ordinary. Or was he? Could he be an extraordinary man hiding his incredible deeds in plain sight too? Taken very suddenly out of his daydream, Jack heard the crackling of someone picking up a receiver. Finally, he was going to be able to speak to someone and get out of this infernal rain. Yes? Was all he heard down the line, but it was hard to tell with the rain pounding the car roof. Jack leaned his head out of the car window, getting an earful of rainwater in the process. I'd like to see Lord Hattenden, if I may. Sorry, Lord Hattenden will not be taking visitors today. Goodbye. Jack heard the crackle of the receiver being put down. Talk about abrupt. But he knew what to do. He'd learned after his previous two engagements that there was a magic word. Sometimes Chester's name, sometimes something relating to Chester that would gain him access. He was confident of that. He pressed the buzzer again. The voice said, Yes. This time it was the same one, but clearly not in the mood for this game. My name is Jack Williams. I've been sent here by the late Chester Smith. The pause seemed to go on forever. After a moment, Jack heard the crackle of the receiver being put down again. He wound up the window and sat back. Well, what now? Should he sit there and wait? Make a nuisance of himself and buzz again? Suddenly dawned on Jack that maybe, just maybe, he was mistaken on this one. Maybe Chester wasn't directing him to Lord Hattenden at all. Maybe his clue about the First Lord referenced something different entirely. Staring out at the mansion house ahead of him, with the windscreen wipers working overtime, Jack was just about to reverse his car and back away, when he noticed something right in front of him. 
the large and imposing electric gates he was parked in front of were opening by themselves. Jack was grateful for the towel offered to him by a fairly snooty assistant, the same man Jack suspected he talked to on the intercom out in the rain. He dried his hair and in vain tried to make himself more presentable. A young man in a pinstripe suit came into the reception room Jack had been directed to a few moments before. Mr Williams, Lord Hattenden is ready to see you now. Please follow me. Jack placed the towel on a nearby recliner and followed the pinstriped man through the grand hallway and towards a large set of double doors on the ground floor. The whole place looked like a national trust home that Jack had visited a few years ago. In a somewhat showy way, the man in the suit opened the doors and beckoned Jack through and shut the doors behind him. Jack found himself alone in a huge study. It was chock full of dusty old books, a bust of Adam Smith and others Jack couldn't identify, and at least three antique desks. He suddenly had an unnerving feeling. Was he alone here? Come closer, young man. Jack nearly jumped as he heard the words being spoken. At once he noticed the back of an old man's head, sitting on a wheelchair down the other end of the large room. Lord Hattenden. Hattenden was facing out of the large old window, looking out on the torrential downpour over his land. He turned as Jack got closer. Hattenden's wheelchair looked positively Victorian, with a tartan blanket keeping his legs warm. He had kind eyes, partially masked by large, thick lens glasses. Please sit, Mr. Williams. His voice was frail, but compassionate in tone. Jack did so. He felt a trembling excitement, like he was finally going to get all the answers he needed. This was it. Thanks for seeing me, Lord Hattenden. Not at all. <laughs> Couldn't leave you out there in this awful weather. And it's nice having the company of someone who will listen to you for a bit. Unlike those useless imbeciles in Her Majesty's government at the moment who are driving us ever closer to war against Brazil and won't take my phone calls. He trailed off for a moment before recovering. Sorry. Lot on my mind at the moment. Would you care for some tea? I'm fine, thank you. Hattenden smiled somewhat knowingly. Of course. You're probably impatient to know more about Chester. Jack's heart skipped. I was incredibly sad to hear of his passing, but I've been waiting to finally meet you. I must say I am mightily impressed that you've managed to follow everything through so quickly. Chester and I had thought that it would take weeks rather than days, if that. Good for you, he said with a smile. Jack didn't really know what to say. Thank you. It's been an interesting few days. Lord Hattenden allowed himself a chuckle, which was eventually cut short by a rather nasty cough. Oh yes, I'm sure interesting is one word for it. Um, by now, you must know that a great number of Chester's stories he told you over the years were completely true. Yes, said Jack, apart from the odd embellishment. Of course, said Lord Hattenden, chuckling again. Chester had a delightfully colourful imagination, didn't he? I will miss him. But what story do you suppose I represent? That was a good point. Jack had been so eager to solve the riddle that the story behind it was, well, this time around, utterly lost on him. Hattenden could see that Jack was confused as he offered a clue. 
Something to do with prime ministers, perhaps? Jack looked up and smiled. Oh, of course, how could I forget? Is this the story about him saving the prime minister's life once? The nod that Lord Hattenden gave was all Jack needed. He could suddenly remember the story Chester told him when he was young. My dear young man, did I ever tell you of the time I saved the Prime Minister's life? He was going to be blown up by the baddies, but I got in there in the nick of time and defused the bomb. As Jack was reminiscing, Hattenden finished the story that Jack was replaying in his mind. A militant group called the Collective were calling for the confiscation of all wealth. MI5 had them under surveillance. The society that Chester and I belonged to heard of a plot to kill Harold Macmillan. The idea was it would raise the game and make people deeply frightened of what would happen if they didn't see their demands met. I'm not good with the stories like Chester was, but let's just say that Chester was able to infiltrate the group and stop the bomb going off. I was chief secretary to the PM at the time, but Macmillan never knew about the attempt on his life or about Chester who saved him. Jack leaned forward earnestly. Why didn't Macmillan ever get to know about it? Couldn't Chester have gone an OBE or something? Once again, Lord Hattington smiled. <laughs> An OBE? Oh yes, I'm, I'm sure that would have been nice, but... That's not how our society does things. Concealment and discretion are the key to helping us achieve our goals. A society? What do you mean? Were you in Chester part of some sort of organisation? Yes, Mr. Williams, we were. I still am. And I hope soon you will be. Chester and I were part of a secret society. I know it sounds sinister, but our aim is simply the advancements of freedom and liberty to all of mankind in any way possible, without the use of force, of course. A secret society? asked Jack. You mean like the Masons or something? Oh, not really. The Masons aren't a secret society. They're a society with secrets. I mean, think about it. You've heard of them for a start, so how can they be secret? We're talking about a group that no one knows exists. We can be found all over the world, and often communicate in secret, and together we have achieved, or set up conditions to help others achieve, astonishing things that have advanced freedom and prosperity in more ways than the people will ever know. Jack sat back. His mind was blown. He knew, just knew, there was no way this old man was having him on. He had already heard so much from both Professor Winkleman at Reading University and Ambassador Zizi Ubuntu at the Ugandan Embassy to know that the former Prime Ministerial aide was telling nothing but the truth. The idea for you was simple, continued Lord Hattenden. Chester knew he was not much longer for this earth and needed a successor. Before one of us dies, we need to pick someone who could, in theory, take our place. That's how it works. You have free will, of course, and after hearing all the details, you can choose not to join us. We will find someone else, and in time, you will forget all of this. But Chester chose you, Jack. Above anyone else, he could. If you've come this far, this fast, then I suggest he chose wisely. He wanted you to take over from where he left off. By virtue of the fact that you've made it this far and jumped through the hoops he set you, means you have earned your right to join. We've done it this way for centuries. Jack's heart was racing. It all seemed too remarkable. He felt like he needed to be alone to think this over. Was this something he should even be thinking about? What would I have to do? He finally asked. How do I even know if I want to join this club of yours? <laughs> Chester will tell you all you need to know. How can Chester help me? The old man smiled again. 
fellowship. <laughs> the word you're looking for is fellowship. Part 10. The drive home had given Jack the time he needed to calm his nerves. He had to admit the whole thing had made him panic a little. Lord Hattenden didn't pull any punches. He was keen to let him know that the duty implied by joining this secret society was a life-changing thing. In a silly way, Jack was having the same feelings he felt when he had made big choices in the past, taking on a mortgage for the first time or asking Heather Brimlow out on a date when he was 15. But all those experiences somehow felt insignificant compared to a decision he knew he was going to have to make when he got home. Once he finally arrived back home, Jack was feeling much better. There was a little anxiousness, but most of it had gone. The weather had been kind as he was leaving Lord Hattenden's mansion, and now as he was home the clouds were white in the sky and were breaking up to shine light from the beautiful blue above. Jack looked at his laptop. He went to switch it on, but paused. He instead popped into the kitchen and got his bottle of whiskey from out of the cupboard, a present from last Christmas from Chester. He poured himself a glass, then another. Once he got back into the lounge and the laptop had booted up, Jack inserted Chester's SD card and double-clicked on the file readmelast.doc. The password dialog box popped up again. Jack took a deep breath and typed fellowship. The file opened. After reading the final document, he closed the laptop down and stared out of his window. The rain had now completely passed. The sun was coming out. He grabbed his coat and went for a walk, finding his legs taking him to the street of his childhood outside Chester's house. Removal men were taking Chester's possessions out from the house Jack had spent so much time in as a kid and as an adult. Jack couldn't believe it. Lord Hattenden was right. In the last file on the SD card, Chester had told Jack everything he needed to know. It wasn't the whole story. No doubt that would come with time and with Lord Hattenden's help and the help of others as yet unknown. But it was enough for Jack to know the truth. He finally understood Chester's secret. Jack had also finally understood what his duty was. And the moment he realised it, standing outside the old man's house, he instantly agreed in his heart to uphold that duty for the rest of his life. But what was that duty? That was now Jack's secret. That was Chester's Secret. Story 3 from Everything in Seven Stories, written by Andy Jones and narrated by the author. This is a Gold Pictures production. <laughs>